With that, I'd love to just welcome everyone to this week's Citizens Climate University. It's a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight's topic is gonna to be reviewing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Reports, parts one, two, and three. So to do that, we're gonna be joined by the wonderful Dana Nucitelli. Dana is an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. Dana has written about climate change since 2010 for the wonderful website, Skeptical Science. If you haven't heard of them, check it out, skepticalscience.com or The Guardian, and since 2018 for Yale Climate Connections as well. He's published a book called Climatology versus Pseudoscience and has authored 10 peer-reviewed climate studies, including a real groundbreaking 2013 paper that found a 97% consensus among peer-reviewed climate science research that humans are the primary cause of global warming. Dana's joined CCL staff in the last year after nine years as a volunteer with its Sacramento time, gives many presentations and has led our science policy team for the last five years plus as well. So we are truly honored to have you here with us tonight, Dana. And I'll just review our learning goals and then pass it to you to review our agenda and take it from there. If we've done our job well in the next hour together, we're gonna to try to condense a lot of information and review the latest three volumes of the IPCC's sixth assessment report. We'll talk about what the report tells us about the causes, impacts, and policy solutions to our changing climate and end by calling forth to engage all of us in action by calling on Congress to make sure not to drop the ball and pass important climate legislation this session. So with that, you're in for a really wonderful webinar. I know Dana's put a lot of time into the research behind it and take it away from here, Dana. Cool, thanks, Brett. So yeah, we're gonna go through all three volumes of the latest IPCC report and then how you can take action and then do some Q&A as time allows. So this is the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, the sixth assessment. Uh, they do one every seven or so years. So last one was in 2013-2014. Um, so very exciting for all us climate nerds whenever a new IPCC report drops. And we got three different volumes, the physical science basis, uh, the impacts, adaptation, vulnerability, and mitigation of climate change. So we're going to go through all three. Um, they combined are over 10,000 pages of material. Uh, for reference, the Harry Potter series of books were combined 4,000 pages or so. So it's pretty, pretty voluminous. Uh, so there's a lot of material to go through and we're gonna do it in less than an hour. So buckle up, cause we're gonna go fast. So first volume, working group one is the physical science basis, basically the causes of global warming and climate change. Uh, this one was published last August. It was the first one that came out. Um, so kind of the basic science. So one of the key findings in that report uh, was not really new, but they gave uh, more confidence to the finding that humans are responsible for all of global warming that we've seen over the past 150 years or so. Uh, you can see this chart here is showing the black is the observed global surface temperature. The blue is the influence on surface temperatures from natural factors, the sun and volcanoes. And the red is the influence on, on temperatures from human factors. Um, so you can see that the 
but and also combined with natural factors. And you can see that that matches up very well, but there's not very much comp contribution from natural factors. It's really all due to humans. And so putting that into text, uh, we've seen about 1.1 degrees Celsius, give or take, of global surface warming over the past 150, 60 years. And the likely contribution of human factors is about 1.1 degrees Celsius, give or take a little bit. So pretty much 100%. Natural factors are, are, are responsible for plus or minus 0.1 degrees Celsius. So basically you've got humans responsible for 100% plus or minus 10%, give or take. So uh, this relates to a very common argument that people will often say the climate always changes naturally. And so the current climate change is probably natural and maybe humans are, are contributing to it somewhat. And so it is certainly true that the climate always changes naturally. However, over the past 150 years, natural factors have had no significant effect on global temperatures. It really has all been humans during this period that we've seen this very rapid rise in global temperatures. So that's the global warming parts. And then that warming contributes to various types of climate change. And so for example, when we get that warming, we get higher temperatures, you get more evaporation of water from soil, and that causes various different types of weather to become more extreme. So for example, when you have a natural drought or a natural heat wave or a natural wildfire, as we have lots of these where I live here in California, when you have drier conditions, that makes all of those kind of natural uh, types of weather events more intense than they would have otherwise been. Or if you live in a region that's more prone to wetter types of weather, um, a warmer atmosphere also holds more water vapor. So as we've warmed, we've seen more water vapor in the atmosphere. And that's when you have a rainstorm come through, there's more water available to fall as precipitation and you get more intense precipitation. And then you also get more intense flooding as a result. So the type of climate change impact that you get depends on the type of region that you live in, the type of climate and weather in that region. So we're gonna go through some examples of that. Um, so this is a nice chart from the IPCC report, uh, which by the way, I also created regional climate impact slide decks that uh, these slides you're gonna see on uh, the next few, charts you'll see in the next few slides are in all of those uh, regional climate impact slide decks. So maybe Brett, you can put the link to where to find those slide decks in the chat. So extreme heat, uh, is very common one. Uh, it's a very direct consequence of global warming. You get higher temperatures. You're also going to get higher uh, intense temperatures, more extreme temperatures, and more frequently and more intense. Um, so this is showing that in the late 1800s, what was a once per 50 year, so very extreme, very rare uh, heat wave events, we are now about one degree Celsius warmer than that. So that same extreme heat event now happens once every 10 years. It happens about five times more frequently than it used to. If we get to 1.5 degrees warming above pre-industrial temperatures, which is kind of the ambitious Paris target, we're trying not to ideally go beyond that. If we get there, that same what was a once per 50 year extreme heat wave event happens now once every six years. If we get to two degrees, which is kind of the more realistic Paris targets, that same heat wave now happens once every four years. And if we get to four degrees Celsius, which is kind of a catastrophic level of global warming, that same heat wave happens almost every year. So basically what used to be a very rare heat wave event just becomes more and more and more likely to happen as the planet warms more and more and more. So we have a similar situation for drought, although the change isn't as extreme. 
But as I mentioned, you get higher temperatures, you get drier soils, and so then you get more intense droughts and more frequent droughts. So in this case, the IPCC showed what was a once in a decade uh, extreme drought event in the late 1800s, now happens once every six years. Uh, at one and a half degrees Celsius, it's then two times more likely, it happens once every five years instead of once a decade. At two degrees, it happens once every four years, and at four degrees, it happens once every two to three years. So again, it's not as extreme of a change, but nevertheless, you're seeing more frequent, more intense droughts as we get higher temperatures. Uh, this is a nice map in the report, the IPCC report, the first uh, working, group, working group volume, showing the regions where we are confident that we're going to see, continue to see more intense droughts happening. Uh, so you can see like the southwestern United States, including Canada, or including California, going down Mexico through Central and South America, lots of drought concerns in our region of the world, also around the Mediterranean and Europe and Africa and South Africa and parts of Australia. Um, and those are just the regions that we have confidence that droughts are going to continue to get worse. So there's quite a few regions, including here in the U.S., where we have to worry about these worsening droughts due to higher temperatures. And then another one I mentioned is extreme rainfall. There's this relationship that as the atmosphere warms one degree Celsius, it holds 7% more water vapor. So again, that makes precipitation uh, events become more extreme and happen more often. So same kind of chart from the IPCC report was once, what was a once per decade extreme precipitation events in the late 1800s. Now happens once every eight years. At 1.5 degrees, it happens once every seven years. At two degrees, it happens once every six years. And if we get to four degrees, it will happen once every four years. So again, this is not extreme of a change as the change in heat waves, but nevertheless, you are getting more intense and more frequent uh, extreme rainfall events and thus also uh, worse flooding events. And then another contributor to flooding is hurricanes. So hurricanes are also becoming stronger. The IPCC report said it's likely the proportion of major hurricane intensities and the frequency of rapid intensification events have both increased over the past 40 years. Uh, so rapid intensification events is basically when a relatively weak storm really speeds up and becomes much more powerful very quickly, which tends to happen when it goes across very warm ocean water because warm ocean water basically acts as uh, hurricane fuel. And so because we have warmer oceans, you get more of these kind of situations where a weak storm will go across very warm water and it'll become a very strong storm very quickly. So that's happening more because of global warming. Also, the IPCC report found that translation speed of hurricanes is slowed uh, over the US over the past century. And translation speed is the movement of the hurricane across the water or across land. And so a good example of this was Hurricane Harvey uh, several years ago. Uh, so I was going across the Gulf of Mexico and then it got to Houston and it basically parked itself on top of the Houston area for several days on end, just dumping rain, more and more rain and bringing more and more water storm surges in the Houston area and causing all kinds of flood damages because the hurricane was moving so slowly with this slow translation speed. So it seems to be that these hurricanes are slowing down likely because of climate change uh, over time. And so overall, in terms of intensity, at 1.5 degrees Celsius, the IPCC estimates we'll see 10% more hurricanes reaching the most intense categories, 4 to 5. At 2 degrees, that goes up to 13%. And at 4 degrees, that goes up to 20% more hurricanes reaching the most intense categories. 
which may not sound like a lot, but there's only like 10 to 20 named storms per year. So you're talking about one or two or three or four more hurricanes reaching categories four or five. And then, you know, it's a question of where the paths of those hurricanes happen to go. And if they happen to go across a populated land area, they're going to cause a whole lot of damage. So you're basically playing Russian roulette and adding more bullets to the gun. And so it's a very uh, dangerous high risk situation as we see more warming and more of these intense hurricanes. So let's shift to working group two, which is about climate change impacts and also how we're gonna adapt and how we are particularly vulnerable to climate change impacts. Um, so how we can become more resilient and what it's going to do. So one issue is food and water insecurity. Um, extreme weather events are not surprisingly not so good for agriculture or water supplies as we see you know, increasing dryness that can dry out our water supplies as well. So the IPCC report said that increasing weather and, ex and climate extreme events have exposed millions of people to acute food insecurity and reduced water security. Uh, and climate change has slowed agricultural productivity growth over the past 50 years. Because uh, we have seen this really large increase in agricultural productivity as we've gotten kind of this like green revolution where we've gotten really good at, you know, doing things like applying fertilizer and we have, you know, machines that are very good at uh, planting crops and, and uh, gathering crops and we got pesticides and, and herbicides and all these things that we've done to like increase the crop yields of farms which have been successful and they're successful to a certain point but then you've got climate change counteracting some of that by increasing droughts and floods and dryness and so it has offset some of that technological agricultural productivity increase already. Uh, also, the impacts of this food and water insecurity are highly inequitable. Um, so we're seeing a lot of food, flood and drought related uh, acute food security and malnutrition in particular in Africa and Central and South America, uh, which are regions that tend to be clo located closest to the equator. So they're already very hot. So their agricultural is very um, already vulnerable to changes in weather. And then they see more you know, increased droughts or floods or hurricanes going across and they are particularly vulnerable to those sorts of impacts. So it's a very unequal vulnerability to these climate change uh, impacts. But it is not just uh, developing countries that have to worry about these impacts. It is also us in wealthy countries. And so there's a chapter in the report on North America and that chapter noted that climate-induced redistribution and declines in North American food, food production are a risk to food and nutritional security. Uh, climate change will continue to shift North American agricultural and fishery suitability ranges as temperatures change and intensify production losses of key crops and livestock and fisheries and aquaculture products. So we're not as vulnerable as some of those developing countries living or that are close to the equator, but nevertheless, our agricultural productivity is also vulnerable, especially as, you know, temperature ranges shift. And so like an area where you might have grown corn in one area for a long time, then suddenly the temperature gets too hot and it's not suitable for growing corn anymore. And then that farmer has to somehow adapt to that changing climate. So the IPCC report concluded that the picture is stark for food systems. No one is left unaffected by climate change. And then these impacts, they affect physical health, but they also affect mental health. So it's kind of interesting. I think this was the first time the IPCC talked about mental health. Um, so, you know, we know mental health is stressed when we're 
directly impacted by climate change because there's the trauma of suffering and loss. Um, you know, you lose your household or your memories, things like that, or your loved ones, um, or your livelihoods or culture, things like that, that, you know, are lost when we get impacted by extreme weather events. Or you can just see other people being impacted by extreme weather events, worry about them, or to worry about your future and the future stability of human society as the climate continues to change. All these things are mental health stressors. Um, so the IPCC report talked quite a bit about that. And then of course, there are the physical health stressors. We've got you know, extreme heat is very bad for people's health, uh, heat stress and, and heat strokes and things like that. Breathing air pollution, because we have worsening wildfires, putting more wildfire smoke into the air, which is very bad for people's health. Also air pollution just directly from burning fossil fuels. Uh, we got vector-borne diseases expanding because mosquitoes and ticks and these uh, insects that spread these diseases, they like warm weather. And so the range of, in the United States in particular, of, of these, the region that is suitable, that is warm enough for these vector-bearing uh, insects is expanding. And so, so is vector-borne diseases. And food and water insecurity, as I mentioned, uh, is also not so good for physical health and is also expanding. And then we have biodiversity uh, declining. Um, so the report concluded that the risks of near-term near biodiversity loss in a variety of ecosystems range from moderate to very high, depending on that particular ecosystem and how vulnerable it is to climate change. So we would be smart, uh, the IPCC suggests, to conserve a lot of land and ocean, uh, somewhere between 30 to 50% of our land and freshwater and ocean areas would be good to conserve uh, to protect these various species and biodiversity. And there are all kinds of benefits that I'll talk about in a bit from land conservation. And they looked at a variety of species across the world to see how they're doing and concluded that approximately half of the species that they looked at have shifted polewards or also to higher elevations because again, they're trying to stay within the same temperature range as temperatures around them change. So it's cooler at higher elevations or it's cooler toward the poles. Um, so they're trying to keep up with the changing, the shifting in temperatures. And, but we have already seen some irreversible losses. Uh, for example, some species have already gone extinct due to climate change uh, killing them off. So uh, the good news is that there are some positive things we can do, like uh, doing things to become more resilient to climate change impacts that have other benefits, win-wins. Um, so for example, uh, we can preserve coastal ecosystems, which for one thing, like mangroves and, and different uh, species along the coasts can protect against sea level rise and storm surges as you know, sea levels continue to go up and as hurricanes get worse and push more water on land, uh, these uh, coastal ecosystems can help protect us uh, further inland against too much flooding. Um, and those also protect biodiversity because they're protecting your, if you conserve that, you're protecting the habitat of all the species that live in those uh, regions. And then if we diversify our energy sources with renewables, that of course reduces carbon pollution and other air pollutants, but it also can create a more robust power grid because then you can have like little localized microgrids uh, that are more resilient instead of everybody relying on one big coal power plant, for example. So if the coal power plant goes down, then everybody loses power. But if everybody's got their own little microgrid, then they're more uh, resilient to those kinds of changes. Uh, but the IPCC made a point to note that we need to be smart about our adaptation and resilience efforts. And then talked about this term called maladaptation, 
Um, a good example of that is here where I live in California. We have for a long time engaged in very, very aggressive fire suppression because you know wildfires have started to get got worse and worse and worse in part, in large part due to rising temperatures, drying things out. And so we've kind of fiercely battled these wildfires by putting them out very aggressively. The problem is uh, that has resulted in too much buildup of vegetation in our forests. And so again, now we got too much fuel there when there's wildfire, there's so much fuel that they are hard to put out. And it's actually been, um, we've overdone it in terms of fire suppression, kind of made the problem worse because not only is everything drying out due to climate change, but also there's more fuel there because we haven't allowed fires to burn naturally. And so that's a good example of these maladaptation efforts where you can be trying to adapt to climate change, but kind of make the problem worse, or you can create a different problem uh, in, the, in the process of trying to adapt to climate change. And so we just have to be very smart in our adaptation efforts not to have these uh, unintended consequences. Uh, and then we've probably all heard about the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. I mentioned that's kind of the ambitious Paris targets. Um, the IPCC report also talks in several, several locations about the importance of that target. Um, they call it a, a critical level of warming for both losses and damages and limits to adaptation. So for example, in ocean and coastal ecosystems, uh, the risk of biodiversity loss increases uh, significantly as you go beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius level. Um, there's a similar situation for terrestrial species. So the number at high extinction risk at 1.5 degrees Celsius, it's between three and 14% of terrestrial species. At, at high risk of extinction. And as you get up to two degrees, that goes throughout to three to 18%. So the upper range goes up. And then as you go to three degrees, it's three to 29%. So just kind of you're getting more and more species as you get to higher temperatures at high risk of extinctions. And so if you can limit that to 1.5 degrees Celsius, you can kind of limit the number of species that are at risk of going extinct. And then flood damages are a big one because you have these compounding effects. You've got worsening, uh, more intense precipitation that we talked about. You've got worse hurricanes becoming more intense, pushing more water onto the land. You've got, so you got bigger storm surges, you got rising sea levels. And so if you combine these, like you get significantly increased flood damages so that at two degrees Celsius, flood damage are twice what they would be at 1.5 degrees Celsius. And if you get to three degrees Celsius, they become three times more intense uh, with flood damages. So that's a big impact where the further you go down 1.5 degrees Celsius, the more of these damages you have to worry about. And then we talked about the vulnerable region food insecurity, uh, those kind of countries that are close to the equator for the most part. Uh, so their risk of food insecurity is moderate at 1.5 degrees Celsius, but it's high at two degrees Celsius. So there's that big difference that as they get beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius, all these risks of extreme weather impacts uh, impacting their crop production become quite a lot higher. So uh, putting that all together, uh, kind of the conclusion of the second volume of the report is that we have a very urgent problem. This is probably a quote everybody's seeing because it was in like every news story about the second volume of the reports. But basically uh, they say that um, any further delay and concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future. So get your butts in gear and don't let the window close without taking enough action. So now we're on to the third volume. So the second volume was published at the end of February and then the third volume was just published at the beginning of April. So just a couple of weeks ago. 
And this one is on mitigation. So basically how we're gonna solve the problem through technological and policy solutions. So it's got this nice chart kind of showing where we're headed, where we wanna be headed. So the red here is the uh, level of emissions projected into the future based on current uh, international climate policies. So you can see pretty much flat going up a little bit based on currently implemented climate policies. Uh, this Navy one is if we include uh, commitments to reduce emissions by 2030. So that would cause emissions to drop a bit before 20, by 2030 if countries follow through with their commitments. So there's a big difference between uh, a, a sort of pledging that we're going to reduce our emissions and then actually doing the policies to make that happen. And the United States is a good example where we've got uh, a pledge that we're going to reduce our emissions 50% by 2030. And we are right now nowhere near the policies to make that happen. We're trying to get the policies in place, but so far we are not on track. Neither are most countries on track with their pledges. So you can see then the green here is the track that we need to follow to get to below, stay below two degrees Celsius and the blue is to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And you can see there's a very big gap between where we're at, where we pledged to go and where we need to go. And so this Navy line kind of shows if we meet our commitments to 2030, we can still get back on track with two degrees Celsius if we really quickly reduce emissions after 2030. But basically you can see the longer you delay, the steeper your cuts have to be and the harder it becomes. And so again, that's the urgency problem where we really have to get our act together if we're going to meet the Paris targets because right now we're not on track to get there. The good news is that um, there are technological options available in every sector that would allow us to have our emissions by 2030 in every sector. So the technology is there, that's not the problem. The problem is the political will but the technology is there, so that's good. So we're gonna go through the different sectors and what the IPCC report recommends. So in the energy sector, pretty much uh, get rid of fossil fuels as quickly as possible, transition to renewables, maybe some carbon capture and storage if you can do it affordably. Um, a lot of electrification and improved efficiency, which we're gonna talk about electrification a whole bunch in the next few slides. And you can also do some uh, deployment of hydrogen and sustainable biofuels um, in areas that you can't electrify. Uh, also, interestingly, they have a lot of potential with just reducing demand. Just reducing demand of energy can cut down emissions, basically cut it in half by 2050 if we are very uh, successful at reducing demand by doing things like more walking and cycling, electrifying transport, less air travel, making houses more energy efficient, uh, lifestyle changes like changing in diets is very important because eating meats, uh, especially beef, is very greenhouse gas intense. So if we can get people to eat more plants, that will reduce our dietary greenhouse gas emissions and our agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so lots of things like that that we can do just to reduce, change our lifestyle and our, in our, in our uh, activities just to reduce our demand of energy and greenhouse gas intensive uh, products. And then we've got transportation, which is very important in the US. Transportation is our number one source of greenhouse gas emissions right now. So there's a lot we can do there. Electric vehicles have a lot of potential because they are much more efficient than gasoline powered vehicles. Uh, they also rely on the electric grid, which is relatively clean and becoming cleaner and cleaner all the time. And so the fuel for electric cars is becoming cleaner and cleaner all the time and electric trucks and buses and such. So that's 
that's good. Battery technology is improving fast. And also the IPCC report concluded that the costs of batteries have decreased 85% over the past decade. So they're becoming much, much cheaper, much, much faster. And they're also becoming longer range. And so that's very promising. Um, aviation and shipping are very tricky because batteries are heavy. And so you can kind of do long, or you can do short flights with battery powered airplanes, but longer flights probably need some kind of alternative fuel like hydrogen, ideally uh, obtained, uh, we call it green hydrogen when you get it from renewable energy using electrolysis to split water molecules, uh, which is a little expensive right now, but coming cheaper and cheaper over time. So that's got some potential. Uh, also potentially biofuels, although you have to be careful about the biofuels because that can be tricky. Um, making it both low carbon uh, biofuels and also not taking up too much land because we also need land to grow crops. And so biofuels can be a little tricky. But yes, there is a lot of potential in transportation, especially in electric vehicles. Uh, buildings, we're, we've got some progress making buildings more energy efficient. And so new buildings, we need to kind of concentrate on building new buildings that use those efficient methods to make the new buildings energy efficient. Um, and also retrofitting existing buildings, kind of weatherizing them to make them more efficient, adding more insulation and things like that. Um, also replacing fossil fuel heating, uh, like furnaces and water heaters and boilers with uh, electric heat pumps, which are more efficient and have a lower carbon footprint in many cases. Um, so that's a good thing to do and building new homes with heat pumps instead of a, 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 a fossil fuel heating. And then cities uh, could definitely use better urban planning so that people can walk and cycle and use public transit more and not have to rely on driving cars. Um, so that's really good. Also, uh, green spaces are really good because not only do they pull carbon out of the atmosphere from the trees and other plants in the green space, but they also keep the surrounding environment cooler because pavement asphalt tends to kind of radiate heat and make things hotter and then you need more air conditioning. It takes more energy. So we like green spaces, very good. Uh, and industry, industry is tricky because there's a lot of different energy applications and in different industrial processes and some of them are harder to decarbonize than others. Uh, so one relatively simple thing you can do is just use two materials more efficiently, reuse and recycle them, uh, things like that. There are some processes that we can electrify and so we need to electrify where we can, but in industry achieving net zero emissions is going to be challenging. Uh, which kind of gets to the next point, which is carbon dioxide removal. Re the IPCC report is very clear. We're going to need quite a bit of carbon dioxide removal. For one thing, just to offset the hard to eliminate emissions, because it's going to get hard. It's going to be difficult to get every single sector down to zero emissions. And so we're probably going to have some leftover emissions that we have to offset by pulling some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And ideally, we also want to pull some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that is uh, already in the atmosphere to reduce the level of carbon dioxide in the air because we're already up to like close to 420 parts per million and we're already seeing severe climate change impacts just from this carbon dioxide and the temperature change that we've already seen. So uh, there's a couple different categories. Uh, natural biological methods uh, have some potential, reforestation, afforestation, uh, conserving forests, um, are very, very good potential. Um, the difficulty is making them more permanent because for example, you have wildfires that can burn forests so you can have bark beetles that can kill trees. And so that's a little bit challenging, but still a lot of potential there. Um, also soil carbon sequestration from things like uh, agricultural activities, regenerative agriculture, doing cover crops, no-till uh, farming, things like that. 
again, the challenge there is making it permanent because uh, like if you do no-till agriculture and then you go back to tilling, then all the carbon that was in the soil goes back into the atmosphere. So it's hard to make that permanent, but there is still a lot of potential there. Um, and then there are of course, uh, direct technological methods to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, direct air capture, which uh, right now is very expensive and very energy intensive, but there's research going into improving that. So we're probably gonna need some of that too. Um, and we're going to need um, better methods for measuring and reporting and verifying, especially the natural methods uh, of carbon removal to make sure the carbon that we're moving through these natural methods stays in the trees or the soil so that we're not trying to take credit for, for carbon that was temporarily removed and then went back in the atmosphere. And then uh, land use talked about the importance of land conservation, um, because again, the land and vegetation in the biosphere does a whole lot of pulling carbon out of, out of the atmosphere for us. And so we need to conserve it to allow it to keep doing that as much as possible, uh, protecting natural ecosystems, forests, peatlands, wetlands, savannas, grasslands, uh, also agricultural land, not letting agricultural land kind of get developed over by urban areas because agricultural land is very important for pulling carbon out of the atmosphere as well. Uh, so smart management, things like that are very important. And then investment, uh, also very important because right now we're actually investing more money in fossil fuel projects than we are in climate projects. And we need to reverse that and get that going the opposite direction. Uh, the IPCC report estimated that to meet the Paris targets uh, by 2030, we have to increase the financial flows into climate, uh, climate change projects by a factor of three to six times higher than they are right now. So we need a lot more, a lot more money flowing into uh, climate projects. Uh, there is enough global capital to make that happen. We just got to get it pointed in the right direction again. That's especially too true for developing countries because, again, they don't have the wealth that we do in developed countries. And so we need to make sure we're sending, uh, and then especially since they're more vulnerable to climate change impacts. So they both don't have the wealth to invest in these things. And also they're the ones getting hit hardest by the impacts. And so it's really important that we invest in an equitable way and get investment going into developing countries' uh, climate projects as well. So the good news is that we have a lot of solutions that are very, have a lot of potential and are also very cheap. Uh, so this over here you can see is a nice uh, chart from the report. The size of the bar is the potential size of the emissions reductions from the given technology mentioned here on the left. Blue means that can actually be implemented cheaper than the status quo. And then like light orange shades mean it can be implemented relatively cheaply. And so you can see the big ones here are wind and solar energy have tons of potential to reduce emissions. A lot of this is blue because they are very cheap. They're actually cheaper than uh, a lot of fossil fuel alternatives. In many cases, they're cheaper than coal, oftentimes cheaper than natural gas. And so you can just deploy them. And over the lifetime, they actually save money compared to continuing to, ru to run coal power plants. So that's a good story. A lot of these other blue bars are energy efficiency measures. Uh, for example, making buildings more energy efficient takes the investment up front to weatherize the building, but then over time the building is using less energy and so it's uh, saving money and over the lifetime of the building, it saves money. And so again, that's a blue bar. That's something you can do to save money in the long-term. So you can see we have a lot of solutions here that are either cheap or will save money. And so it's just a matter of investing in deploying those solutions. So that's the good news. Um, but we need to do it fast because the report uh, concluded that we are very close to having the 1.5 degrees Celsius target come go beyond reach. Um, there was one of the authors who in a, uh, the press briefing said it's like now or never 
if we're going to uh, stay within that 1.5 degrees Celsius level ambitious Paris target. Um, and then a lot of reporters took that uh, comment and wrote headlines about it, how it's like now or never, or we're going to have a big disaster, which um, is not a communication strategy that I like because it's not really accurate to say now or never, because like if you want to meet the 1.5 degrees Paris target, then yes, we have to act now. But if we miss the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, it's not like the world ends. Like it's not never. Like it's like we can still like get to 1.6 or 1.7, and we might miss 1.5, but like it's still not going to be a total disaster. It's just going to be worse than it would have otherwise been. And so I wrote a piece about this for CCL, and uh, I kind of framed it a little differently. That while it's true that climate policy is maximally urgent, there will be no point in any of our lifetimes when it's going to become too late to leave the world a better place, future generations than that which would result if we give up. So don't give up. The climate scientists are very get very frustrated when they see kind of climate doom talk, doom talk that's like now or never, or we have five years left to act and things like that. Like it's not, it's not gonna be too late to act and make the problem less bad at any point. So don't fall for the climate doom doc and, and keep your hope and keep, and keep working. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the good news, bad news. The good news is that we have all the technology and the solutions we need to solve the problem. The bad news is that there, we still have these political the political will standing in the way of, of, of implementing and deploying those solutions. So that's kind of how I framed it when I wrote it for my piece for Yale Climate Connections on the reports. Um, so it's just a matter of just a matter of just getting to the political will. That's all we need. So um, yeah, this is, that's kind of how I framed my, my Yale piece writing about this. Um, and there's a lot of, of good news that if we are successful or the more successful we are, in deploying these solutions, the better outcomes, the outcome will be and the better the world will be in many different ways. So not only do you kind of lessen future climate change impacts, but you also get all these other benefits. You get a stronger economy, cleaner air, energy security and price stability, the less you rely on fossil fuels, which are very unstable in their prices as we're seeing right now, uh, healthier people because we're breathing cleaner air, fewer premature deaths, less food and water insecurity, and so on and so forth. There's like, there's all kinds of benefits from doing our best to meet the Paris targets, not just in climate, but also in health and you know agriculture and economy and things like that. So again, it's only the political will that's lacking and that's just the hurdle we have to overcome. And of course, as we're all interested here, uh, the IPCC said a lot about carbon pricing, not just carbon pricing, it talked about all different kinds of policies, you know, subsidies, regulations, things like that, but they said a lot about carbon pricing in particular. Uh, for example, uh, according to economic theory, carbon pricing is more cost effective than regulations or subsidies at reducing emissions. It's a very economically efficient way to do it. Uh, there's high agreement that carbon taxes can be effective at reducing emissions. And there are reasons to believe that carbon pricing is the most efficient way to reduce emissions. So it's very effective, very efficient policy if your goal is to reduce carbon emissions, because that's exactly what you're targeting with the carbon price. Uh, and in practice, they note that carbon pricing has been effective in the places that it has been implemented. Um, and then in addition to be effective at reducing emissions, it also generates these benefits that I mentioned in the terms of creating better air quality and agricultural productivity and things like that. And then it can also offset the economic distortion of fossil fuel subsidies since 
subsidies are very difficult to get rid of. If you can't get rid of them, then you can do a carbon price to offset some of that. Uh, you also improve energy security, as I mentioned, through greater reliance on local energy sources and reducing exposure to fossil fuel market volatility. Um, and substantial carbon prices would be in the domestic self-interest of many countries if co-benefits were fully factored in. That is a very important point. Again, if you take into account these health and economic and uh, agricultural benefits that you get from putting a price on carbon, then it's actually in everybody's best interest to do it. Um, so again, it's just a matter of the political well-being in a way. Uh, and then I talked about the importance of dividends. If you have a price on carbon, uh, redistribution, redistribution of the revenue is critical to address the adverse impacts on low-income groups, as we are well aware. Uh, the pathways in which national redistribution of carbon pricing revenues is combined with international climate finance, that achieves poverty reduction. Again, because you're sending a lot of revenue back to low-income households, and so there's been research showing that you actually bring a lot of people back above the poverty line, uh, poverty line with a carbon being dividend policy. Uh, and then it can also increase public support and alleviate fairness proposals. So people are worried about a carbon price not being fair. If you send the dividend back, then suddenly it's much more fair. And then perceived fairness is one of the strongest predictors of policy support. So by getting the dividend back, they see it as fair and they're more likely to support the policy. And of course, we have the urgency of the problem and also this uh, window of time, this like key window that the uh, second volume talked about. So the timing is very important. Current pricing and other policies are more likely to succeed if they exploit windows of opportunity provided by events that raise awareness of the cost of carbon emissions. Um, so that's something we're kind of seeing right now with uh, the war in Ukraine and fossil fuel prices going up. People are kind of seeing it's a good time to get off of fossil fuels. And a study of 66 implemented current pricing policies shows important effects that seizing political windows of opportunity is important. So we're in one of those windows right now. We've got our Stand With Ukraine um, program that we're trying to do, this campaign uh, to stand with Ukraine to convince our, our representatives and uh, our president to um, get off of fossil fuels and try to clean energy, ideally with a price on carbon. So we're encouraging everybody to go to cclusa.org action, click the buttons, contact your representatives, tell them you want to, this is like with right now, this year, we have this very important but rapidly closing window to take advantage of this opportunity to implement these climate policies, including potentially a price on carbon, carbon fee and dividend. So remind them it's a priority among their voters. Absolutely, Dana. Just a huge, huge round of applause. I know uh, we'll get to questions in just a little bit. There's already been a lot of great chatter in our chat, and we'll get to those first. Uh, but know that uh, you've got 50 plus people here and another 10 plus on YouTube that are all just deeply appreciative of the condensed summary and the powerful way that you have helped convey and really summarize the report for us. I did want to put a quick plug in it, especially this is a lot to take in and it's obviously common to feel a lot of strong emotions like overwhelmed despair, anxiety, or grief. So especially if you would like any support or help with that, check out CCL's amazing resilience hub that I just put a short link in the chat as well that Tamara and many others have helped create for you. Uh, so with that, for you to automatically get synced with attending this training, if you're logged in with your CCL community profile, otherwise you can click through here and just show people where they can go to the action tracker. And then from there, the chapter and volunteer development lever and if you click on that button on the bottom there featured, you can easily click on the trainings option 
and from there select this IPCC report training for your ability. So with that, I'm glad to hear and see that the uh, training link worked for others to log. Um, I'm gonna unmute all lines and we'll also put a link uh, for this next slide where you can contact Dana with his contact information uh, as well as our forums if you'd like to make sure to follow up with any other questions you might have after tonight. Thank you all so much for being here and creating that political will and let's go out there and make it so. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Good job, Dana. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.